0: Hi and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. Anyone that is familiar with this show knows that we explore questions of not only where genomic medicine is going but who's going to get it, a very important question. Uh, Nothing about us without us is a rallying cry of disability active advocates and this sentiment extends to stakeholders in the world of genetic disease whose voices have often been absent at the table when decisions are made about how to use genomic medicine, about where to allocate scarce resources, about what belongs in a carrier screening panel, and so on. Because genetic disease communities are individually somewhere between small and microscopic, it can be hard to hear them roar. No one, no one has done more to elevate and platform those voices than my guest today, Sharon Terry the mother of two children with Pseudocanthoma elasticum, a disease affecting an estimated seven to 8,000 individuals in the United States. But Sharon, whose TED Talk has more than 1 million views, has not only been able to make herself heard, but to build a megaphone for all the voices of the experience. Sharon, I have admired your work forever. I can't believe I've never interviewed you before.
1: Delighted to be with you, Laura. Thank you
0: you know what I, I call you in my head, the consummate outsider, a person who's, who's done such a good job at bringing the sort of outside point of view inside the tent that you're like a staple of the tent somehow and still not. Yeah. So we're here today to talk about a new venture, but first I'm gonna drag you back a bit because the backstory and what you've accomplished is so remarkable. First of all, I've never had a guest bio describes her as, unquote, just a mom with a master's degree in theology. Um, I'm not sure that's a just either, but okay. Tell us about 1994.
1: Yeah, thank you. So yeah, 1994, um, I had spent several years trying to figure out why my daughter had some dots on the sides of her neck, and I'm sure that your audience will appreciate that the diagnostic odyssey so-called, which I don't think we should be calling an odyssey at all uh, in the sense that it's it's not fun, it's not a good trip, um, had been occurring for us for several years. And I finally went in those days out of plan, out of pocket because you had to stay inside your prescribed per- providers and brought my uh, daughter and my son tagged along to a dermatologist that we kind of randomly picked out of the phone book. And he took one look at her and said, "Ah, she has pseudoxanthoma elasticum." And he shut off the lights in the office and looked in her eyes. I was completely freaked out first of all, that he had a name so quickly for something that we had tried quite a number of years from our pediatrician and others to figure out and also that he was looking in her eyes because I was as I say a mom with a master's in religious studies I knew nothing about science or medicine and didn't understand that some diseases are systemic it was my good fortune that Lionel Berkovich was was an ophthalmologist before he became a dermatologist Having fallen in love with a dermatology resident, he switched and became a dermatologist, too. And so he was really well-equipped to diagnose PXE. It turns out most dermatologists can do that, and certainly all ophthalmologists can. And then he took a glance at my son and said, hey, did you notice he has it, too? Which, again, completely floored me. So in a few minutes, a couple days before Christmas in '94 our life just flipped upside down in that way that I think happens to all of us when we find uh, something that's really scary, really difficult. And suddenly we've crossed a line and we can't get back over to the, line, the other side of the line before we knew what was happening.
0: And what was the prognosis for your kids in that moment? Did give you an idea?
1: He said he was very wise in saying, I don't know, very much about this disease. It's on the boards for ophthalmology. Uh, We dermatologists know how to diagnose it through a biopsy and so forth, and that he would do the biopsy and get the confirmation. Uh, But he didn't know. And I went home and called my pediatrician, and she pulled a book off the shelf, the Merck Manual, the old green volume. And in it, it said that the kids would lose their vision in their 20s or 30s, and they would die by the time they were 35 or so. This was again, completely shocking and really hard to digest. I didn't know at the time that one should not accept what a general uh, volume like that says about a rare disease that no one knows anything about. And while my kids will tell you it's the best Christmas of their lives, the tractor-trailer truck from Toys R Us backed up to the house and delivered everything they wanted. Um, we, um, I, I went straight to. We were living in uh, the the Worcester area then, and and Boston area, somewhere between there, and went to the medical libraries and started to research the disease and quickly found out that really no one knew what the prognosis was for this disease. So, really scary and really uncertain.
0: Yeah, humanities education may not equip you to understand. Uh, what you're told in the moment, but it sort of does equip you to be a researcher. So <laughs> Yes. So, pushing um, through that story, uh, part one, I guess, uh, of, of the saga is, is about you organizing the research effort, but in a way that kept the community in control, right?
1: Yeah, so um, I quickly was able to see mainly by just seeing patterns in the literature that there were only case studies, that they were in conflict with each other. And at the same time as I was researching, we had a set of researchers come to our house a couple days after Christmas and say, can we take the kid's blood? We're looking for the gene. And then a few days later, and I said, sure. And then a few days later, another set of researchers asking the same thing. And I said, get it from the other guys. And they laughed at me saying, oh, my gosh, no, we're racing them to find the gene. And I decided there was no way in hell I was going to let somebody take blood from a five-year-old and seven-year-old twice in two days, in addition to the biopsy they already had and so on. And so what I did was create a Um, a a registry, a biobank, essentially all the tools that I thought, all the resources I thought that researchers would need to come to. And then I could call the shots and say, you must share with each other. We are going to have one blood draw per person, and then we can aliquot and send out to you what you need. And at the same time also decided that I better get in the race to find the gene because if one of them found it, these were in the years of people patenting genes like mad persons, and so I um, I went and um, and found the gene through borrowing some bench space at Harvard, and in fact did patent the gene despite the fact that of course the ACLU and so on. <laughs> yeah. I went
0: and found the gene. <laughs> I went yeah, and found the gene. I mean, like okay, in 2015, that's a graduate's. A graduate in bench science project, but who does that in the 1990s? What do you mean you went and found the gene? <laughs> <don't know>. Yes,
1: <laughs> it now seems like of course we did, and now monkeys can find genes. They're not even machines. Um So, so basically, uh, you know, I I didn't even know what a gene was when we started hearing the researchers say they wanted to find it, uh, but I understood quickly it was important and also kind of started to pull the strings around my my resources and so had some friends for example that were also teachers at the Audubon National Audubon Society with me who were at Tufts and at Harvard and places that were doing great academic research and asked some of them to teach me what did it mean to find a gene and in those days essentially that meant running gels and scoring them and so on and we would go 10 p.m to 2 a.m uh, while the neighbor across the street who recently died came and watched uh, my kids so that we could be there at those crazy hours. And very quickly, probably only took us about a year, um, we were able to find the gene along with a number of other groups because we got a consortium together where we you know, narrowed down the locus and then finally said, hey, there's five genes in the area. Everyone wanted to go chase the genes no one had ever seen before. It turned out it was a known gene. Um, not known to be associated with pXE, so yeah, so, but I knew that we should also claim the intellectual property so that we could make it freely available, which we did. We licensed it for a dollar until the Supreme Court overturned patenting.
0: This is a period of time where a lot of other say disease communities, the families involved, cooperated with researchers feeling like we're all in this together, we're going to go find the gene, we're going to be able to find a test and identify it, and then the The test showed up, and lo and behold, it cost a fortune, and the fact that it was their blood, literal blood, sweat, and tears that got them there didn't make any difference, and uh, there was a lot of resentment. So you were quite prescient in identifying that it would be valuable to literally be on the patent, right?
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah, that seemed to make a a lot of sense to me. And again, this was applying just a lot of logic from other parts of my life that just made sense to me and not necessarily – uh, on the straight and narrow and I like your opening saying I, I've been the an outsider and that's been so beneficial to me because I'm not constrained by you know having been trained in a certain way or thinking that's out of my realm. I, anything or everything is in my realm because my eyes are open to whatever comes.
0: How'd you go from getting close? I know how you got close in the 90s, but how'd you identify the gene by linkage? Yes, yep. Just curious. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and did that? And did did knowing in those days? So knowing where the gene was allowed you to, to know something about reproductive risks and so on. Uh, did it point up towards a pathway towards treatment?
1: So it did not. Um, The the gene is ABCC6. It's in the ABC family of transporters. And the only other big diseases known in that field were more calcium channel ones like cystic fibrosis, in fact, um, and, and a few others. There wasn't really much at all even basically known about the structure of these proteins and so on. So I helped to finance an annual meeting or a biannual meeting uh, called the ABC transporter meeting in um, Innsbruck every year and just sat there and slogged through all the basic science with all these basic scientists and started to fund them in very small amounts, mostly European scientists, often from uh, Eastern Europe and places that were not expensive to fund, also traveled around Europe and South Africa to some founder populations as well as others to get more and more data, clinical data and DNA. Um, And it took a long time until we found in the mid 2000s. So the gene was, we found it in 1999. In the mid 2000s, it started to be clear that this was predominantly expressed in the liver and kidney, which was a bit, again, with my naivete, how could it be in the skin then? And now I get it. But, um, and then, and not until probably late, 2000s did uh, researchers that we were funding figure out that actually what was awry in people with PXE is low pyrophosphates in the blood, and that low pyrophosphates in the blood meant that the typical mineralization that occurs in everyone isn't mitigated the way it is in everyone because it's low in the peripheral regions like skin and peripheral arteries and eyes. Um, So it was a very circuitous route. And one very cool thing, too, was thanks to a wonderful researcher in Hungary who did a lot of this work, a guy named Andras Varady, who still works with us, he he also eschewed any um, dogma, which said... Pyrophosphate is not soluble in water. You can't ingest it and increase your blood levels. In fact, it's a um, uh, it's a, a, a additive, a food additive. The FDA has approved. It's in sausage and chocolate and cottage cheese and cream cheese and so on. It's an emulsifier. So we can't give it to people and expect that will improve their PXE um, course. He said forget that, I'm going to try it anyway, drank a bunch of it, and his blood levels elevated, and then he tried it on all his, his postdocs, and they all had higher levels of pyrophosphate, and he he discovered that, in fact, um, it probably shouldn't be treated as a food additive, and it does have um, an effect. In, in food, it's such a tiny amount, it doesn't matter, but, but it gave us...
0: You can't treat your kids with cream cheese. No. I <laughs> didn't mean trailer truck fulls. Um
1: and we haven't even tried yet treating with pyrophosphate, but we know now that it is an indicator of whether or not the other ter- therapies we are trying in now phase two clinical trials will actually make a difference uh for the disease.
0: This woman listeners, I've never done an aside before. An aside. This woman is a tribute to a humanities education. That's all as a that's <laughs> As a fellow, as a, someone who went through master's level with an, an English degree, yeah, I'm, I'm like raising my fit. Um, <laughs> this whole story, you're a mom looking out for your kids, right? But there's a bigger picture here where you said, okay, but how do we scale up what I did, right? Yeah. Um, so when did the Genetic Alliance come to? be a part of this picture?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. So as we started to build the biobank, the registry, all these things that other lay people were not doing, we had a lot of families show up at our home then in Sharon, Massachusetts, and ask us, can you do this for progeria? Can you do this for ectodermal dysplasia? Can you do this for preeclampsia? And so on, even, even BRCA breast cancers and 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 so on. So I, I remember this moment where we sat our kids down and we said, you know, if we go and do this for more than this disease, we will actually slow down progress on finding a treatment for PXE. But it seems like we should be working for all diseases. And by then, the kids had met enough other kids with conditions because we were hanging around in these circles for them to say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And I think they were you'll see they were born in 87 and 89 this was about the year 2000 so they're somewhere around 11 12 13 uh each and um so i began to work very closely with genetic alliance which at that point was 10 years old had done remarkable things was deep into the genetic information non-discrimination act um rallying on capitol hill uh we slogged there for 12 and a half years to get that passed um, and so I started to work for both PXE and Genetic Alliance. The comedic thing at the po- that point was one of the very prominent people was a genetic counselor. Diane Baker was on the board of Genetic Alliance, and she said, we will only allow you to be the CEO of Genetic Alliance if you get a house cleaner because your house is a wreck. So <laughs> it was part of the deal, and I still have one to
0: today. So. <laughs> Good job, Diane Baker. Shout out <laughs> to you. Take yeah. Care of the people who are taking care of the people. All right. Yes. Yes. Um. So, this is an incredible story, and of course now the Genetic Alliance is just thing we take for granted that this an umbrella organization, all of these smaller disease stations that advocates on their behalf and also just is a one stop shopping to all these people and, and coordinate their access to their own resources. So My little ad for the Genetic Alliance, one of the great organizations uh, that exists in this country in the genetics space. Um, so I asked Sharon here today, I'm not usually such a cheerleader, but oh my God, like what? what can you say? I asked Sharon here today because I recently heard her talk and she was talking about a whole new initiative that's really a different type of uh, access um, magnifier, I guess, you know, an access multiplier, uh, which is going beyond, okay, the people who have the wherewithal after all to find their spot in the genetic alliance um, already have certain advantages, right? You know, computer literate and have some... Access to healthcare systems, even though it tear your hair out, terrible, it's still something. So, I hope is this new project, which I to tell us about, uh, with the goal of medicine to a far broader audience.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's extremely exciting and in fact was announced last year on my 65th birthday which was November 16th and you you and I are together here on November 14th so we're coming up on the one year anniversary. Uh we are going to diagnose the world's undiagnosed. And that might sound terribly grandiose and impossible. However, a whole bunch of things conspire to make it possible. Certainly the advances in genetics, genomics overall, and we always hoped that this would be the great equalizer, this kind of technology, that we would not be leaving. The world's under-resourced individuals in the dust, and we kind of are still. And even in America, we're leaving people in the dust. So the idea comes from a program at Illumina uh, called I Hope, and ours is called I Hope Genetic Health. Um, folks at Illumina, Ryan Taft, Julio Ortega, and several others have worked eight years diagnosing people, kids mostly, but people all over the globe, and really wanting to scale that up. They can't do that. Uh, you know, gratis out of Illumina as easily as we could in a nonprofit. So last year on November 16th, Illumina announced they would give Genetic Alliance $120 million in instruments and reagents. That last year was worth just so much, and now it's worth three times that because of the new NovaSeq X that Illumina just announced that brings the cost of a genome down to a crazy two or $300 a person. So our task has been to partner with um, networks that already exist around the globe and particular attention to Africa, South America, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and to find who needs a diagnosis and what labs are capable of doing that because we don't wanna do this as a helicopter science project. We want the people themselves to own the data And we're partnering with a company called Luna that allows every individual to control their own data and use it for what they see fit uh, around the globe. And so our work um, basically is to find these persons, people who have no insurance or underinsured uh, to offer through a regular clinical pipeline in whatever country they're in. a a diagnosis through um, clinical whole genome sequencing. And then to um, store that data, Amazon Web Services has given us a phenomenal uh, grant uh, in order to be able to store that data for free on our side. Uh, And then open that data to further research if the individuals allow it. So what we imagine is some people will get a diagnosis and there'll be a known disease with a known drug. That'll be about 230 to 300 of the diseases of the 7,000 rare diseases. The rest are going to have a known disease with no treatment and then need the support groups that exist around the globe. Genetic Alliance has been very active in the International Rare Disease Research Consortium that has Really stitch together all the advocacy groups in the world. Uh, And then some will be without a diagnosis, probably about 50%. The work at Illumina has shown somewhere around 40 to 45% don't have a diagnosis. And so, those are going to be needing clinical trials and basic science in some cases and so forth. So, what we see is this is going to create a huge ecosystem with a lot of network effects that we're not going to control. This will be open so that anybody can come and do research. I like to say, smart Girl Scouts will figure out what we need figured out quicker than if we had kept it all within the university ivory towers.
0: So, the so many things, so many things. So, if you're talking about 50 or Fifty-something odd percent of people getting a diagnosis. You're looking for a very enriched s- sample of people who look like they should have a genetic diagnosis.
1: So, so that the remarkable thing, and and the paper that uh, that Ryan and his team has put together should be out soon, is that while he thought that was going to be true, it turned out that was not true. That he needed just an average pediatrician to be able to say, I don't know what this kid has, and not necessarily the kind of thing that a good geneticist would do, which is say, and I think it's likely genetic, um, and still had very high rates up in some some communities that he was in in various countries in Africa and so forth. It was 60% that were diagnosed. So we expect we'll have similar numbers. He's done 1,006 kids. And so I think we'll have similar numbers to his. We've,
0: we've done programs like that here, right? You're working with the Undiagnosed Diseases Project, which is NIH. So you've gotten Amazon, Illumina, your nonprofit, NIH to all work together. I didn't even know those people could talk to speak the same language. I didn't know that could happen. But the Undiagnosed most Diseases Project, I thought it ran about 30 mm-hmm. percent in their sample, which is some a sample where somebody has said this.
1: Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of selection they're doing with regards to what are some novel problems we can address, whereas if everybody we sequence has Pompeii or Gaucher or ectodermal dysplasia, unknown disease, we're really fine with that. And the a lot of these kids will not and again adults too but in the majority of kids will not have had uh any kind of panel before or any kind of right. even exomes so yeah if you're
0: working in southeast asia and the kid who in america would have been day 2 identified as having something on the newborn screen or whatever they're still in the mix is what you're Yes. Saying. So yes. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah. 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 Makes perfect sense. And and so are you Obviously, I find this in- incredibly exciting and 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 sort of overwhelming. Um, <laughs> are you a little bit worried that you're going to give somebody a diagnosis and there isn't the medical infrastructure? Like, yeah. What does that do? That that's my genetic counselor question.
1: Sure, you know, and and again, I, I'm you're going to have to have Ryan on your show when his paper comes out because one of the things that he learned uh, was that it, he he. Um, uh, segmented his population with high income countries and then low to middle income countries, which is where we're going to be. And he saw that the same amount of intervention, access, etc. happened and that the in different ways, but there was still the same percentage of cell therapies, gene therapies, bone marrow transplants, and so on in kids found in countries where they didn't have the resources and lots of other sort of networks that allow those to be delivered. We have the advantage of of uh, being in already built networks like h three Africa from the from the NIH, like networks that Gates has created for infectious disease that we can still use, Amazon itself has done so much work during Covid about supply chains and getting things into countries that couldn't get it um in other ways with drones and, you know, all sorts of really interesting.
0: Wait, wait. Do you do, Sharon, you just call up Bill Gates and say, I want a meeting. Like, well, how does this, when well, you just call Jeff Bezos and be like, like, I have a thought, do you want to meet with me? And they all say, yes. Like, how does
1: this actually happen? Hey, almost. I, I haven't spoken to either of them, but certainly people who are their decision makers. I, you know, I think, Laura, one of the advantages I have is i have 28 years in this field and been in every meeting and given my time to every committee. And so met lots of the people that we needed for this project. And so my network's immense. I've never called in my chits, you know, speaking about political things in these days. Um, I've never asked anything. And so now I'm asking, asking, asking. And the answer is yes. And even other technologies, you know, will start with clinical whole genome sequencing. But, you know, when you talk about communities that have been had not had uh, newborn screening, that they maybe screened for three diseases. Well, bringing in panels there makes sense. You know, bringing in various things that are tailored for the consanguinity in a community makes sense. And so we'll be moving into those areas after we after we cut our teeth on this clinical <laughs> whole genome sequence. Did you
0: diagnose all the undiagnosed children <laughs> of Southeast Asia, Africa, and sorry, where else? South America. South America. Yeah. South America. Um that could take some time. Yeah, it could. Who's doing the work? Is it the Undiagnosed Diseases Project people? Like who's literally doing the uh, genome analysis?
1: Yeah. So in different areas, it's different laboratorians working with the clinicians in their area. So what we do is we First, we did kind of a survey of the world who who's capable of clinical whole genome sequencing and offering an interpretation. There are not a lot of labs in the world that can do that. And so we are working with the labs that can and then we're working to upgrade the labs that have been doing this as an RUO or research use only or some other way of of being. Um, We haven't formally attached ourselves in any way to the undiagnosed disease network. We've had great conversations with them, and we certainly hope we can enrich each other's processes, uh, even just in convening to make sure standards are of the highest level for all these different groups will be important.
0: Oh, question actually that that raises for me is, is there also uh, an arm of this, a way that you're offering education to the scientists there, another way in which the ant, like, not helicopter science, sort of, instead of dropping in, giving them information, and, and then leaving, um, you're nodding. But they can't see you nodding. She's nodding. Yes, yes, yes. You're, you're, yes. you're going yes. to educate Yes. Bring that bring that capability elsewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's been a really terrific place that both genetic counselors, geneticists, pediatricians, institutions have said, can we help? And we'd like to help by, you know, doing a training or doing a genome day or doing, you know, a a kind of manual or something like that. And yes, so we'll be doing a lot of that matchmaking as well. We won't be doing it ourselves, but there's a lot of training programs that are especially interested in um, people in low to middle income countries becoming proficient and, and capable in these areas. So yes, we will be doing that as well.
0: Do you have a relationship with genetic counselors? I could, like, like Do you need genetic counselors as, as a part of this? Like,
1: yeah, that would be terrific. Yeah.
0: All right. So offline, we're going to have a little conversation because <laughs> Great. I think that this would be incredibly exciting opportunity uh, for both the uh, Speaking on behalf, but I, I don't speak for any genetic counselors besides myself. But I know them. Yes. <laughs> I yes. I know they'd love to be involved institutionally, and then also maybe some of the training programs. Like we, we used to do some international stuff. Wow, that would be really. Exciting. Yeah, uh,
1: that that would be that would be really terrific. Our our biggest challenge is an interesting one, and that is that while we were we're given all this in kind, enormous amounts of in kind uh, goods, services, resources. We figured it would be super easy to garner the philanthropic funds we need to do this because obviously we need operating monies for Genetic Alliance, very small amount, like two million a year compared to the millions that we'll be deploying, uh, but also money to do shipping and customs and licenses, and insurances and setups and software and you know all that sort of stuff. Um, and we had a very interesting year so far in that we went to all the high net worth individuals I knew of, which turned out to be about 140 people worth more than 10 million, uh, and then also, and some in the hundreds of millions, and then also to uh, all the major pharmaceutical companies, foundations, and so on. And there was not any interest in this this way yet, because there is no philanthropic ecosystem in inherited disease the way there is in infectious disease. You know, Gates has opened up this enormous ecosystem for lots of philanthropists to pour their good, hard-earned money in and not in this space.
0: Jeff Bezos, I believe, yesterday promised to give away most of his money in his lifetime. Are you listening? Are you listening, Jeff? <laughs> I, I hope he's listening. listening. <laughs> and put your stamp on this. Inherited disease, very, very important source of morbidity and mortality across the world. Yes. Competitive, competitive with infectious disease. Yes.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, and particularly if you think we're we're going to sequence the proband, the person who's undiagnosed, in most cases we'll be sequencing at least one parent, and we hope two. And so what happens in this Luna database data stream, we're calling it, is that we have not only our goal is 50,000 kids by the end of five years, 50,000 individuals, we have their parents. So 150,000 genomes from diverse areas of the globe who also have cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, heart disease, and so on, you know, making it so it isn't just esoteric rare diseases because maybe Jeff and others think, "Eh, is this really worth it? In fact, this resource is gonna be such an engine for getting so much more done.
0: Well, Obviously, it would not be lost on you that those are exactly the parts of the world where we lack uh, genetic diversity in our databases. I get what you were saying, that like they may not agree to share it, um, but hopefully some people do want to share it, because that would add to the just the power of genomic medicine.
1: Everywhere. Yeah, and most people, as we know, who have a relative, a kid, a sibling, whatever with a with a with a disease, whether it's a common one like Alzheimer's or uncommon and rare, share. And it's just the way that, that that they that they um believe that it is important to do. And I often say it's not so much that people want to own their own data, it's that people want to be asked. I, I often say if I went to your house and took your bicycle you'd call the police. If I went to you and said could I borrow your bicycle you'd say have it. Use it for a month. I don't care. It's a a whole um, thing for me around respecting what you said at the very beginning, nothing about us without us. We need to be in the game, and this is one of the ways we can do that.
0: Yeah, well, respecting and making it clear, transparent that you respect their their wishes and that they can, can try to establish some trust. Right. Exactly. not enough to erode that trust. So Yes, yes. More of an affirmative step. Like where you're talking about going in the world, some people might not say, go ahead, take your, take my bicycle. They don't right. know you, Sharon Terry. Like you could have all my bicycles. I don't actually have a bicycle. But if I had a bicycle, <laughs> you could have it. But I would feel very safe that you would bring that bicycle back. Yeah. And if you broke it, I would know, like, Sharon would fix that bicycle. Mm-hmm. And the bicycle metaphor probably past its native limit. <laughs> but but really i don't know you in somewhere other parts of the world so yep. there's a lot of trust establishing that has to happen yes the, is the first child of this program already sequenced
1: no we're in the process of enrolling them uh in fact we believe this month maybe next month the first uh first few families will come through yeah
0: wow and they will be
1: where Uh, We're going to start actually in the U.S. in underserved communities here because we know we can easily work with the couple of labs that are capable of this in the U.S. that they can adhere to the standards, which they already uphold anyway, cap and so on, uh, very esoteric, but your audience will get it. And then um, also that the transfer of data to the individual's accounts in LUNA take place, and we see that that works to, uh, quite smoothly. We're also dealing with only English and Spanish in the US for now. Um, when we move into, you know, one of our first countries will probably be Indonesia, another one will be DR Congo, we'll be starting to work with other languages, and there's also all sorts of challenges in that regard as well. The good thing is our point of contact will be the clinician and lots of these clinicians because they've been part of these robust networks have been working in their own native language with their patients, but also in English with the networks that they're part of.
0: Well, it's quite a journey. I was thinking when you were talking, I was imagining um, religious studies, Sharon Terry, ever imagining herself getting to a point where you described $2 million a year as this trivial amount. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I would have thought $20 was a, a real lot then. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you yeah. like, well, you can't use the Xerox machine because that costs... <laughs> that's enough.
1: right. That's another 10 cents for that, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah yep. it's a whole new world now. Um, well, it's incredibly exciting and uplifting. I mean, I'm nervous, right, because somebody sent me an email earlier this week about a friend of a friend, as a kid with a rare disease, and basically they're trying to sort of crowdsource a few million dollars because with a mm-hmm. few million dollars they have a shot at a a cure. Yep. For this right now, where we are right now, that kind of makes sense, right? And and they're yep. aware that that the same is same thought. That we shouldn't just be doing this for our kids. They're like, well, we, know we want to start a whole move, like moonshots. And raise money and do it piece by piece, and it just honestly, it just breaks my heart. Um, that this is what medicine looks like, yeah, on the internet trying to you know fundraise, you know, and I guess billionaires just throwing out a few million dollars to fix what happens to they love it. Can't be, it just. It's, it's heartbreaking as someone who loves the field this much. It's like that can't be the model. There has right. to be other models where it's not just like the person that can put together two, three million dollars can fix their kid right. and the rest of us go to hell, you know? Yeah. That's-
1: yep. Yep. So- really really unfair and the other there's two parts of that that are unfair I think the basic model uh, my my son who's now very involved in this field too says it's one of the places and there are several places in society where the victims the people who suffer have to be the ones who are the activists and advocates that's really hard and the second part of that is it when I I, I and I hear from families like that all the time of course and what I'm so sad about is that they haven't found genetic alliance you know that we have a free registry system. We have a dirt cheap biobank system. We have all the templates for agreements between industry and advocacy and so on. And a lot of these families are recreating all of those, but we stink at marketing because we don't have marketing dollars. It's just not something, you know, we barely can scrape together enough to do these tools, let alone to do the good marketing we need to do and to be known by these families. So, We keep hoping and really grateful for shows like yours that, you know, that the word can get out that, you know, our our directory dot org is a great place for every family to connect to the resources, every genetic counselor to connect the families to the resources, and that we can help these families because that's what our umbrella is for. It's to put us all together into a big coalition, co-op, whatever we want to call it, and get the job done together rather than one-offs.
0: Uh, well, I try not to be in the infomercial business, but if you're going to be an infomercial for something, it should be the Genetic Alliance. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Laura. And if you're going to fangirl for somebody, it should be Sharon Terry. <laughs> I'm really okay about that. And and we're going to end this show because it's coming up 40 minutes, and I told you it'd be 30 minutes. But um, we're going to talk some more, and I bet I have people that contact me because I'll tell you – know that my community will definitely want to be involved great yeah thanks so much sharon what a pleasure
1: thank you laura and soon yeah great work bye